Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Glenn Hines, and I'm based in Derry, Northern Ireland. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Sebastian Kaplan, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Hi, Seb. Hey, Glenn. How's it going, man? It's doing good. I am doing good, man. Yeah, another great episode recorded today with our friend from the Mint World, from Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers, Antoine Duehi, who is a psychiatrist from the University of Pittsburgh. So... Today, we're exploring the, the relationship between motivational interviewing and the practice of psychiatry. But in advance of having a chat before the episode, if you want to just remind people how they can stay in touch. Yeah, so on Twitter, we, they can use the handle at Change Talking. Uh, on Facebook, it is Talking to Change. On Instagram, it is Talking to Change Podcast. And for any direct communication with us, for questions, for episode recommendations, anything like that, you can email us directly at podcast at glenhines.com. Fantastic. And as I say, the, the episode today was really exploring the relationship between motivation interviewing or the practice of motivation interviewing in the world of psychiatry. And we were very fortunate that Anton has agreed to do a role play. So at the end of the episode, about 25 minutes of uh, role play with yourself and Antoine. So w- what what was your takeaway from today then, Seb? Yeah, so I, I think for me, one was sort of a big picture takeaway. And for those who don't know, and I might reference this later in the episode, I am a psychologist who works in a department of psychiatry here at the Wake Forest University School of Medicine. And for most of my career, I have dedicated the work I do, whether it's clinical or educational, to uh, having it some way related to motivational interviewing. And I would say it's a, it remains a challenge for me to um, not, not so much, well, the application of motivational interviewing is, is challenging and difficult in many respects and, and something I strive to get better at. But the, the, the teaching part of it, in particular, teaching MI to medical students and maybe in particular to psychiatry residents whose training perhaps comes from kind of a different place, let's say, uh, you know, the medical model is something that Antoine references. And it's, it's something that, it's not that MI and the medical model are in conflict with each other, certainly, but it, it takes a bit of thinking and creativity on how to marry the two. And it's something that, uh, you know, is, it, it remains a challenge for me. So it was really great to hear Antoine describe the way in which he uses MI, not just clinically, but uh, the, the really um, rich description of his use of MI in teaching context with medical students and with psychiatry residents. And then a specific concept that he mentioned that I found interesting was the idea of the limits of helpless, helpfulness. And we 
are and, and should be helpful to the patients that we work with, certainly, but we can't be all things to all people. And to recognize that there are limits in what we can do in our roles are helpful, not just in the clinical realm and helpful for the patient, but it can also be helpful for us as the provider to recognize that, that you know, not every outcome falls completely on our shoulders. And so those are the, the two things that kind of stood out to me. How about for you, Glenn? Uh, that idea of the expert trap, you know, it's almost like that's what Antoine was describing there, but the, the limits of helpfulness is that, that we're not responsible for everything that happens in this uh, helping relationship. And, and certainly that fits very much with our understanding of the spirit of MI, which is building on the, the strengths and the talents of the individual themselves. They've made it this far without us. How did they do that? And what it is we, what can we bring to the party that can support them achieve what it, whatever it is they're looking to uh, explore for themselves? And, you know, building on what you're saying yourself, you know, I, I'm a social worker by trade and in my own practice over the years, I've worked in mental health and addictions and multidisciplinary teams where there was this blend of the social model and the medical model. And, you know, most of us will recognize the tension that can sometimes, that professional tension that can exist in the team where individuals who've been trained in slightly different models of understanding uh, approach their, their work. And and Antoine interestingly explores that idea that you know, motivation interviewing perhaps has its origins because of its, 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 its rootedness in psychology more from a social perspective than from a medical perspective. And... His willingness, by chance, as it turns out, to be introduced to motivational viewing and indeed addictions and how the trajectory of his life changed in a very positive way and just how he has been endeavouring to understand what it was that Miller and Ronick were first began to talk about in the early 80s, late 80s, and that he's still endeavouring to develop and practice for himself as a psychiatrist, but also, as a, as you say, as an educator or new doctors, whether they stay in whether they stay in, in psychiatry or go on to more more specific or generalized medicine for the future, for him it's just about being a good listener and, and and being helpful by listening properly or in a more efficient way. And um, you know, it's just that balanced and balancing use of the relationship that he describes and that's modeled. In the, in the short 15 minute, 15, 20 minute role play at the end of this episode, uh, that where, where you are a, a new patient or a relative new patient to his psychiatric care. So when we say cheerio to Antoine, you will hear then the opportunity to stay on and listen to your role play, which we'd recommend. But let's get on with the show. Hope you enjoy it. Well, Antoine, thanks so much for joining us. We're really excited for our conversation today. Maybe you could start with how we often start with our guests, telling us a little bit about yourself, the work that you do, and uh, what we've uh, come to coin your uh, early MI story. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Uh, well, it's, it's in a way uh, really, uh, I would say, a fascinating story. I, I uh, was My first exposure to MI was back in my first year of residency training in Syracuse, New York. And I had a great mentor at that time who was an addiction psychiatrist and um, Dr. Tinelli, you know, and he, uh, we were supposed to meet for mentorship. He was assigned to me and it was at the VA. And at that time, you know, I was in my 
you know, first year, starting close to the second year of my residency training in psychiatry. And uh, he, uh, interestingly enough, he told me, okay, well, before we start really our really mentoring sessions, you know, I'd like you to read a book. And he gave me, he handed me the first edition of Motivation to Viewing, which was really, I, I had no idea what, what was that about. And, uh, and then he said, okay, well, I know that you have a, an elective that is really coming up. You know, how about if you, if you would be interested in working with me on the inpatient unit at, at the VA, which is already an addiction floor. They see a lot of patients who are going through withdrawal. You know, obviously a lot of uh, substance use, patients with substance use as well as PTSD. And, and uh, so I said, well, look, I'm not really much interested necessarily in the substance use field. You know, I would really kind of prefer if I can do it in a, you know, more of an, uh, an inpatient setting, that's fine. You know, I can do it uh, probably uh, working with patients with depression, anxiety. That was my main interest at that time. I I was not uh, much interested in, you know, addiction and substance use. And so, look, I, I know that you don't have much experience. You don't know much about it. You know, at the same time, it would be a very kind of a general experience, general exposure to uh, really listening to people's stories and what they are going through. And you're going to see a lot of these patients who have substance use disorders who experience depression and anxiety. So don't really kind of look at the patient as just a, a, a disorder itself. Look at the patient as a whole. And, and you know, and I would really encourage you to really do that, uh, you know, uh, that rotation. I said, okay, great. I will, uh, we'll try it. You know, it was two weeks. And I'll tell you, it's been, it's, it was an amazing experience because I, I wasn't really, as I mentioned, I wasn't experienced in terms of knowing much about addiction. And you talk about back in 92 at that time, 92, 93. And even the field of addiction has not evolved much at that time. We had limited really kind of treatments. You know, there were a lot of psychosocial treatments, you know, that were available, but we, there had, at that time, also, there hasn't been much in terms of really uh, clinical trials, you know. And uh, so the, the one aspect that was so fulfilling for me is, and that was really very much also aligned with the time when I started rereading the book and we started the conversations about motivation to viewing, is that how it kind of also fits very clearly with really uh, uh, seeing patients who are struggling with their motivation to change about different behaviors, particularly substance use or the depression, how to manage the depression. And also a lot of the patients that I've seen have a lot of comorbid medical issues. So you talk about patients with the diabetes, hypertension, heart disease. So we talk about multiple behaviors that they were supposed to really manage and deal with. And really the motivation to viewing approach and learning it at that time and 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 getting a little bit of an understanding of what it what's about, you know, using it in a sense as a kind of a roadmap for the work that I've done was really fascinating and very fulfilling for me and and I kind of you know it was it was really kind of a total really change in my whole mindset and my whole perspective about really uh, psychiatry but also about my interest in addiction so this is how my interest in addiction basically started and and then I started building on it and since then I mean I've been really practicing addiction psychiatry for now 27 years more than 27 years and and uh and, and I'll tell you, I, I would really say that really the, the MI has been a big part of my growth professionally, but also personally, you know, throughout all these years, 
you know, and uh, learning it, practicing it, training in it, and uh, uh, training, you know, practitioners in it, and uh, and doing even clinical trials, you know. So I have the whole range of experiences with motivation interviewing, particularly with the aspect of, as you know, the the issue of the fidelity issue, because we we hear a lot of people saying, "Well, I do motivation interviewing," and then you see you see them in action, and then you wonder. What are you referring to exactly? <laughs> so that does not sound like really fits motivation interviewing. So this has been my story, and I have really uh, evolved through the whole process uh, as an addiction psychiatrist, and I'm very much involved in training medical students, particularly my biggest interest has been medical trainees, specifically medical students. And uh, here at Pitt, uh, we have really integrated motivation interviewing uh, 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 curriculum uh, into really the the whole big uh, 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 you know the the whole aspect of really the psychiatry not just psychiatry initially it was a part of the psychiatry curriculum at the same time I kind of in a sense tried to move it away from just really giving it that it's a part of just psychiatry and just moving it more into the behavioral medicine and and the you know the medical school embraced that you know and that uh, really this is, has to be more mainstream uh, really uh, 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 practice you know and uh, and they've adopted it and we're really kind of now one of the schools one of the medical schools in the country that really uh, seriously train medical students in motivation to deal with yeah, what's interesting about what you're saying is the significance of um, the fact that we're here talking about change and supporting other people change, that in 1992, 93, you had a plan for yourself. And there was a moment, a transition moment, where you were invited to think about something differently. And it led you in a completely new trajectory. And it sounds like the two things happened alongside of each other. One was that you were introduced to uh, addictions, and there was something about working in, in the addiction field that captured your attention. But alongside of that was the introduction to motivational interviewing and what that offered to you. And it was, it was all that what was significant was that invitation for you to begin by listening to your patients. He said, your, your mentor said, look, just come here and just practice listening and see where, because you, it'll be helpful wherever you go. And it sounds like you've stayed there ever since in that, in that world. So I guess what I, and I guess other people are interested in is what was it about addictions and more specifically given the podcast that we're, we're on what was it about motivation even that meant that you married those two things so successfully for this long yeah you know that's, that's a great question you know I, initially i was really terrified you know because i i had no idea i had no experience whatsoever working with patients in general it was really my first year really and i've done most of what we do in the first year also is medicine medicine and neurology in the training in psychiatry. And uh, what really kind of, when I when I look at how much it was really, uh, motivation training was so helpful for me is that it made me think of patient stories from a, a non-judgmental, uh, you know, uh, uh, more compassionate, more really, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, the whole listening aspect and not feeling that... Uh, I need to do the work or, you know, and I've learned a lot from just really the listening to the stories that the patients shared with me and just being, and again, goes back to what we talk about with MI is being present with them. That's sort of free. It, it was a way for me to help me feel more confident too, that look, this is not your, you know, that, that, that they're going to be the ones who are going to make the change. You need to walk 
to be there to guide them through the whole process. So in a sense, it it was from the beginning, it gave me a, from the beginning that kind of a different perspective of what really the practice of psychiatry was. So, uh, which is really, in, in a sense, because I never thought, okay, well, wait a second. I know that it was really that in the first edition, as you know, it was more about addictive behaviors. There was nothing much discussed outside, you know, that area. And because there wasn't much, obviously, evidence based or there wasn't much really studies. But, but at the same time, it was more when I read the preface uh, uh, in the first edition. Uh, in the preface, uh, uh, there was a paragraph that starts with a word of informed consent. This approach is likely to change you. I keep going back. This is from 1991. In fact, you know, it, it did change me. I keep always reflecting when I share, you know, my experiences, you know, with trainees, you know, and practitioners. You know, I keep mentioning this to them, and I, uh, as we say, we'll give them that kind of, and Bill, Bill Miller has talked about it, you know, about the informed consent, getting really kind of a consent from them that we're going to be training where you might, really see that approach as really potentially transforming you into uh, not really necessarily changing your style, but just really giving you that sort of a different perspective on what would be like working with patients, you know, and what, what would be really fulfilling about it. What uh, and, and, and this is how I kind of, I felt it was really perfect fit for who, with who I am, you know, as a person. Which I th- I look back at my whole experience for more than now. I've been in Pittsburgh for twenty two years, and uh, uh, you know I I have trained so many. I mean, like I have on average, you know, twenty five to thirty medical students that I train every year, and I can tell you ninety eight percent of these students, you know, felt that the motivation interviewing approach, the spirit of it, the the the, the way of being with people. You know, the, the empathic way of being with people was a really perfect, natural fit with who they are as people in general, not just really how they're going to practice medicine. And, and it's been really, I don't think there has been anything much more fulfilling in my whole career, you know, than this. I mean, it just really, you know, I do a lot of clinical work. I see patients. Obviously, this is also fulfilling. I do clinical uh, you know, uh, trials and uh, uh, a lot of dissemination, a lot of training, but but that particular aspect, uh, feeling that I can really also uh, share my experience of what I've gone through in terms of really my growth in the process of learning am I and and really living it in a sense, you know, and and making it a part of you know my identity, you know, and uh, you know sharing it, you know, and and they kind of relate a lot of majority of the students relate so easily and so quickly. And I'll tell you, it happens in, in really within a few days of working together because most of where I do the work in MI is on the inpatient unit, on our addiction floor. And this is where the students and the residents work with me for four. Uh, initially, we used to be four, five weeks of rotation. Now it's four weeks. So you're talking about really longitudinal experience. That, so they get that experience of working with patients and getting the supervision, the coaching, the in vivo coaching, the mentoring and all that. So in a sense, they it becomes really very much integrated into their daily kind of routine of working with patients. Yeah, yeah. Your uh, your passion for MI here, you know, twenty, thirty, however many years later, is still uh, is still quite evident. And I'm I'm just thinking back to that preface of the book that you cited there that Miller and Rolnick wrote back in 
in 91, or at least published in 91. Yeah, I published. began writing it in the late 80s. And the idea that, you know, just so you know, this might change you, right? And so it, it's, and you reference that for yourself as a young resident uh, working in the in the, the VA hospital. For those who don't know what that is, it's a Veterans Administration Hospital uh, here in the, it's a federally funded system here in the U.S. But um, it spoke to you and therefore would likely speak to others. And, and it suggests that the, the path that they, that they thought they would be on might change because of MI. And, and, um, and it, it kind of speaks a bit to one of the questions I was curious to explore with you, which was in psychiatry, there's something about MI that, that might feel a bit, you know, a bit different. That if some, if one, if a psychiatrist, if a resident were to adopt motivational interviewing as a, as a significant part of their practice or integrate it into their practice, that that's actually something that might be different from what one might traditionally experience in the world of, of psychiatry. And so, I, you know, with that kind of broad brush there, I wonder if you could just speak to why am I might be a shift or a kind of a difference maker in terms of psychiatrist practice. Yes. Uh, thank you for this uh, great reflection <laughs> you made here. And uh, well, you know, if we think of really, you know, the, the field of psychiatry and it has really obviously evolved over the course of the years, you know, and I mean, when we're dealing with issues, uh, really very commonplace issues, you know, in psychiatry, you talk about medication adherence, you talk about, uh, you know, uh, management of uh, depression, anxiety, uh, maladaptive uh, coping, any different kind of issues, substance issues. I mean, all these aspects, or any sort of kind of behavioral determinants and aspects of uh, of patient health. So it's not really much different than any areas of medicine. You know, in a, in a sense, I think we have that kind of a tendency to stigmatize psychiatry. Obviously, you know, because you know, it's just obviously when it comes to obviously the mental health, emotional issues. You know, uh, you know, a lot of people obviously struggle with getting an understanding of what people really go through. I, I do strongly believe that it am I really as an approach that is a guiding style, using a guiding style, again, focusing on empowering people, identifying in a sense, you know, their strengths, uh, values, aspirations, you know, and, and obviously fundamentally also, you know, we talk about supporting, you know, and promoting, you know, the autonomy, you know, when it comes to really the decision making, as you know, now we talk a lot about shared decision making, you know, that is really becomes like very much integrated into the practice of medicine. So in a sense, I see it as a perfect fit. You know, I see it as a perfect, really natural fit into what we do every day. Unfortunately, you know, uh, uh, it's psychiatry, the, the practice of psychiatry has not been structured to really, you know, with really integrating a mind. You know, obviously, we, it's getting better and better now, but it, traditionally it has not been be, because all what we, what have, what we've been really kind of, I look back at my own training is that, you know, uh, uh, and particularly as, a, as, as you, uh, as you know, uh, you know, in, in the, the, the field of psychiatry or psychiatrists, in a sense, were not necessarily, uh, uh, in a sense, we were not a part of that movement, let's put it this way, of the MI movements. It was more obviously coming from psychologists, social workers. So we were not really, in a sense, 
uh, uh, <laughs> part of really uh, that really mobilization about really how no you can really you can integrate MI into 3D psychiatry. Obviously, there are a lot of challenges. You know, we know very well that the the image, and I talked about it a little bit earlier, the image of psychiatrists as really uh, the diagnostician, the uh, the uh, the the, the uh, I hate to say the word pill pusher kind of a, we are, this is what we perceive that the prescriber, you know, the language of uh, med checks, you know, has basically in a way undermined our really powerful role, you know, in really, even in these 10, 15, 20 minutes. And as you know, a lot of really aspect of the brief motivation interventions are really, uh, uh, can be really the adaptations of MI can be really very much well integrated in that sort of a context. And at the same time, I kind of believe also that it is not the issue, and this is what's been a challenge for me is in the context of the work that I do with patients in psychiatry and training, you know, psychiatry residents, you know, and practitioners and nurse practitioners who, who work with patients with psychiatric disorders, is that thinking about it is that how can we fit it in in terms of the conversation? I don't have much time. I don't have the whole half an hour. I don't have, how can I fit it in? I need to collect data. I need to really, you know, come up with a diagnosis. I need to come up with really what, what medications could work, you know, what treatment. And then what we end up, what ends up happening is that we don't realize that if we approach it from that perspective, we are really losing in a way the patient. We are not really you know, improving engagement. We are really using some some sort of an approach that is not uh, collaborative, that is not really empathic, that is not meeting people where they are. It's, it's, it's like, you know, in a sense, uh, uh, running the show. We are really here to kind of uh, tell you, again, we talk about it uh, a lot, you know, in, in medicine, you know, the writing reflex, which is that sort of an impulse and urge and desire to fix. And so it comes across to people that, look, all uh, uh, all I'm here really for, and this is unfortunately how patients perceive us. I am here just, okay, what, what are you going to give me? What medication are you going to give me? And, you know, and uh, uh, and uh, how long are you going to spend time with me here? Five, seven minutes, you know, and so let's let's talk about it. And it becomes totally unproductive and not just really unproductive it uh, it leaves you kind of uh, in which i'm talking about my own experience uh, it leaves you with that kind of a sense of what am i really doing here i mean really am i really if if my and from from a kind of really uh, integrity aspect from an ethical aspect you know am i really kind of doing you know uh, 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 am i engaging the patient in a way that i know scientifically is an evidence base that can move the person into really kind of making changes after they leave, you know, and and that is really big kind of an ethical dilemma in a sense. And this is where they, I have a, a couple of uh, you know uh, colleagues uh, now and friends, you know, and who, who are mentees basically, and then uh, they were my uh, I mentored them through a psychiatry training, you know, uh, Josh Mora who's in uh, Buffalo and Dan Cohen who's here in. Uh, in uh, Pittsburgh, and they uh, they uh, use the concept of motivational psychiatry when it comes to really, you know, like it's like we're really trying to integrate it and really present it as really more of how you can really uh, integrate it as an as really a humanistic empirically based really approach in the field of psychiatry that is really 
focus a lot on uh, productivity, focus a lot on uh, how many patients can you see in an hour, you know, focus a lot on, uh, you know, uh, get, get the data, collect the data, you know, and really let's move on and uh, make a diagnosis, tell the patient what the diagnosis is and tell them what treatments are and, and, and not to necessarily give them a menu of options or treatments are, just tell them that this is what, what would work for them. So in a sense, so, so there is this kind of, uh, I, I really struggle with that, you know, dilemma in a sense when trying to really, uh, in a way, uh, debunk this myth about how am I could be reintegrated. It's like, no, it is not possible to integrate it. It's just really, uh, really, this is not for psychiatry. It's really for, you know, uh, a cl- clinics where they treat diabetes, you know, they were, you know, where they treat really a heart disease where, uh, you know, so, and so, and, and I think this has been my biggest challenge in the field to really kind of, in a way, uh, 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 get people to see in a way, I mean, because you have to really show them how it works. You know, you can just, we can talk about it. It's just, if you really, if they are not witnessing and experiencing how it fits in, in these kind of 10, 15 minute, uh, really sessions and, uh, and, and, and how it could be, or how the conversation would remain collaborative. Am I adherent and, and how it could really elicit patients, you know, uh, uh, motivations and perspectives and, and, uh, and work with them to come up with the decision together, you know, they're going to tell you, well, no, I don't know how we could really do this in this short period of time when you really kind of rushed and you have to document and you have to really be consumed by uh, really a system that uh, has not been really, in a sense, to begin with, structured to really uh, uh, adopt, you know, the MI approach. Yeah, so it's almost like you're saying that Psychiatry has its own PR issues in, in, within it, in the general world, but also within itself that, you know, that, that there's ideas that they have of itself and that there's, there's misunderstandings, there's misrep- misrepresentations out there. And that it's not that psychiatry didn't want to be part of this process. It was just, they're a bit later to the party than, than because at the beginning, as you say, it was psychi- uh, psychology and social work. So more, more, more from a social model of practice. But that in the in the intervening years, psychiatry has been watching the research coming in and going, and it's tweaking some people like yourselves' interest, and and you're and they're now asking questions about how and how and if can motivational women be supportive of us, and that that lovely way you're describing it, that motivational psychiatry, which is it's almost like you're saying, look, you don't have to give up being a psychiatrist. You're not going to become a psychologist. You're not going to become a social worker. You're going to stay a psychiatrist. But this stuff can be of, can aid you in what you're doing, which is that opportunity to practice in a more purposeful and sounds like in a more personally rewarding way that, you know, that you're a doctor, you want to be helpful. And you, you, you don't want to just be giving people pills. You don't want to be forcing your, your values on other people. You want to be helpful. And for you, you have learned motivation is a vehicle to help you be both a psychiatrist and be genuinely helpful to people who need it in a in an egalitarian way that uh, isn't just top down. It's about working with. And I guess one of the things to be curious about, and I, and I imagine there there may be maybe psych, psychiatrists or uh, individuals who are considering a career in psychiatry. So how do how do you do that? that, that and how do you help existing or new psychiatrists begin to consider using MI? What is it you're offering them that, that catches their attention? Yeah. You know, uh, 
what uh, I believe has been really uh, fascinating to see is uh, when they start working with patients, when they start their first really session, you know, they are totally, it's like, you know, I always call it like a culture shock. When they see me, you know, uh, engaging the patient using the MI approach and really having conversation about, you know, setting the agenda, you know, uh, getting the patient's perspective on really, uh, you know, what they are struggling with without uh, bombarding them, you know, with close questions, you know, one after another, please, you know. So when they start really seeing that, you know, by example, how really that approach and how this whole way of being with the with the person is about, they start realizing, wait a second, and it does work. You know, it, the patients really start really making statements about, you know, uh, uh, wanting to engage in treatment. They want to really uh, consider some options of medication that we, we can, uh, uh, we can recommend. So what they, what they see in particular, and this is what I, my model has been particularly on the inpatient treatment. We do the rounding and we see the patients all together. And I, they usually, it's the medical student or the resident, psychiatric resident, or even the addiction uh, psychiatry fellow, you know, would do the session first. They finish their session and I take over, continue my session, and then we can really discuss and give the feedback, the in vivo coaching to the students. So what they have seen is that uh, is really that example of even in a 10, 15-minute, 20-minute session, you can accomplish so much and you can move the process of change, you know. And when they witness this and without obviously doing it using, you know, uh, 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 close questions, uh, you know, and uh, 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 educating, uh, preaching, uh, you know, lecturing, without these kind of, as we call them, uh, uh, you know, roadblocks, you know, and they notice that if you're really just present with the with, with the person and you're really, uh, 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 and again, we talk about it in MI, this whole, and, and, and this is one aspect that I, uh, you know, want them to always really see and uh, is the equanimity aspect, being composed there, being really balanced, you know, not rushing the person, you know, the patient, you know, and taking that really, uh, uh, the pause aspect, you know, of when you reflect, let them, give them a little bit of that kind of really 10, 15, 20 seconds to really process what you said, you know, and that's sort of a pace, you know, because they are really, they come, you know, from really different rotations where, you know, they start bombarding patients with close questions, you know, and then uh, asking, you know, to collect more data, you know, and, and all really kind of in a way that comes across really without intentionally being judgmental, you know, they are not, you know, but, but they, it comes across very judgmental and the patient becomes really frustrated, creates that discord in the relation. And they wonder, you know, what, what is really going on here? I want to know what they are going through. I said, well, the way you're doing it, it's not necessarily your intention is you want to get the story, get the patient's story and what they are going through it. The problem is the way you're doing it is really kind of creating that. Again, we used to call it resistance as, you know, guys, I'm trying to, I avoid that because I keep always really putting in the context of really a discord. You're creating, it's the way you're doing it creates that sort of frustration. And why don't you kind of sit on the other side, you know, of, <laughs> of this really, you know, encounter, you know, and I'm going to do this really and bombard you with all these kind of questions to really collect data and see what it feels like. Said, oh, I think I wouldn't like it at all. It just would be exhausting and I wouldn't want to really 
talk about what I'm really going through. So I think, see, you know, from that kind of a model of really the modeling aspect, the in vivo coaching, you know, the, the it's kind of in a sense more of an incorporation of different methods of learning, you know, but I believe there is nothing that really replaces the in vivo coaching, you know, and, and we talk about really the, the session, but also we talk about what's going on with the patients, you know, how their session impact had an, what sort of an impact that their session have on the patient, you know, how did the patient move, whether they, they have been more ambivalent now after their session, you know, with them, or they've been less ambivalent. They are expressing more change talk. They are really, where are they moving and help them really kind of, in a sense, do that, uh, that really uh, functional kind of analysis type, you know, that we do obviously in substance use, but the functional analysis about really the session, you know, how, how it was navigated and uh, what is really, uh, and how much genuine they were, how much really man- they maintain equanimity, how much they maintain the spirit, first and foremost, the spirit of MI, and then learning, and then because they always really struggle initially with, you know, they want to really start with the skills. They want to start with really, you know, the open questions, reflections, you know, and what is really what I see always a struggle and is missing is that first and foremost, the spirit, you have to really be present first and foremost before you, anybody can really, in a sense, do, you know, uh, reflections or ask a question. It's just really, they notice that that kind of a part sometimes is really missing and they build it gradually. And I see it over the course of one week, two weeks, and the patients give them a lot of the feedback about mostly about, we appreciate you were there listening to me. They don't tell them, well, we appreciate that you just prescribed Prozac for me. You know what I mean? But <laughs> they tell them, we appreciate you were really just helping me understand what I'm going through. And so th- this is kind of in a way, it becomes like some sort of an epiphany, you know, for these students, wait a second, that does work and I'm going to take it with me. It's not just going to practice it in psychiatry. Let's say if I'm not going to do psychiatry, I want to be able to redo it if I'm in, in, in surgery, if I'm doing, if I'm in family medicine, if I'm in pediatrics, you know, so they, they start seeing how it can be applied across. So the, the psychiatry example is really kind of in a way uh, is disseminated into, uh, you know, other really practices. Mm. I, I mean, you're you're really describing nicely an example of of a uh, an experiential experience over the course of many many days and weeks, and and it, you know, I think it goes to show um, the the richness of what you're describing, but it but in some ways the importance of going beyond um, maybe more traditional views about how we teach in, in train in medical training programs, right? It's, it's beyond, well, or at least ways in which people might be thinking of how to teach something like motivational interviewing, that it has to move outside of a lecture hall or a small classroom. It's not, you can't rely solely on PowerPoint slides and little exercises that you might do on a breakout group that you're talking about a multi-week experience with real patients making real decisions that impact people's lives and, and, and your modeling of the MI spirit and skills and your observation of residents trying this out for the first time and debriefing right after a conversation with a patient and giving them feedback and having them opportunity to go back and try again and incorporate that feedback day in, day out is, is, 
what you're offering. And it, it, I imagine, uh, from, from the standpoint of a psychiatry resident. And as, as I mentioned before we started recording, I've met two people independently who've met you and worked with you and have found your, your, um, your work quite, uh, impactful. So, uh, that's really, really wonderful to hear you describe that. But my question is, it's a bit about, and, and I don't know if I've mentioned it already on the recording, but I, I've been in a department of psychiatry as a psychologist, granted, but in a department of psychiatry now for over 15 years. And I, one of the things that I think I've, you know, observed, and I guess in a way that makes MI somewhat challenging at times to integrate is, is some of the language or common terms that we use in psychiatry uh, that describe people or patients, right? I, I guess I contrast it with how, say, a, a primary care physician might talk about another patient, right? So a, pa- a, a doctor might talk about someone's blood pressure or someone's, you know, blood glucose level or range of motion or, or these kinds of things which are fairly distant from how a person sees themselves, right? It's, it's just the way their blood flows or how their knee feels or something like that. But in psychiatry, we have these terms like insight, judgment, personality, or, you know, other ways to describe people that, you know, I think anyone could recognize could feel quite offensive, you know, addict, raging, borderline, you know, these sorts of things. And, and I, I guess I'm just wondering your experience as an MI practitioner and a teacher of MI and how you either reframe something like, you know, calling someone an addict, right? You already talked a bit about starting to kind of move away from the word resistance, right? That was one example you've already shared. But even something like insight, right? That's such a common term. So-and-so lacks insight. So-and-so has poor judgment. And so it's, it's, a, it's kind of a long-winded entry into my question, but, but how do you use some of these common terms in psychiatry, but use them from the standpoint of the MI spirit in a way that's, that's more patient-centered? Well, uh, uh, you're making really excellent points here, you know, and, and which has been really what you mentioned about the whole the stigma, the challenge of the stigmatizing language that has been ingrained also in our society. And, and, uh, and I, I always really refer to when I'm having conversations, you know, with my trainees, I always refer to if this were to be somebody with diabetes, how would you approach the fact that they, you know, cannot, they struggle with managing their diabetes. They struggle with really uh, managing, checking their blood sugar. How would you really kind of see that? Uh, how would you really approach this patient differently than if you were to have a patient with really severe depression and they have a hard time taking their medications consistently? If they have a hard time being activated, what they do, you know, to really feel much better, you know, and to isolate less. And, you know, and, and it's really fascinating because initially, you know, that they, the response is always more like, as you mentioned it also, Sebastian, is more that kind of a really more concrete, when there's more concrete things to really focus on for trainees, it's easier to really kind of see it as a focus you know, of really treatment versus, you know, when there are some things that are not as more kind of related to emotional struggles, they really, 
you know, feel like it's just vague. I don't understand it. And you talked about, you know, some of these concepts of insight, you know, and which I kind of sometimes really drives me nuts because it's kind of comes with this whole thing of when, when you mention insight or the patient lacks insight or has a poor judgment, you know, and I kind of really immediately to kind of drives me nuts because it, it, it kind of really, you know, conveys some, some judgment here. And the judgment comes from the fact that how about if we understand what they are struggling with instead of just using a label? Because first of all, when you use a label, here we go, another, this is an implicit bias. You're really kind of going from that perspective that if you see them as lacking insight into their behaviors, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to really inject insight into them, you know, so they can really make the change. You know, so I had your three challenge, and they said, no, but I mean, it's just, uh, so then how would you want to approach it? And I think it, the, the, the challenge has been in particularly in working with, uh, with patients with, with psychiatric disorders is we know very well that the whole damaging labels, you know, and you know that the, whether the addicts, schizophrenics, you know, I mean, we use that, as you said, the raging borderline, all this, you know, clearly invalidating, uh, disengaging and, and instead of really kind of going into conversations about that, you know, diagnosis and being the expert there and really the diagnostician in a way, how about if we have conversation and maintain some sense of the humility and some sense of really, you know, again, I talk about the equanimity, some sense of openness. Well, what is your understanding? I mean, obviously, these are your symptoms that you've described, that you've struggled with. You know, what is your understanding first of what, because we have a lot of people who come tell us, well, I, uh, I am bipolar, I am schizophrenic, I am this and this, you know, and I kind of right away want to react in a sense, tell them, don't play with yourself. But I obviously, you know, I'm not going to do it this way. I approach it from, so would it be all right with you if we have a really conversation about it in terms of what, what do you, what do you mean by all these kind of you? They told you these kind of things. They told you that you have a bipolarness. They told you this. What is really exactly your understanding? We can work here together on figuring out your better understanding, in a sense, using their words to really build on, you know, helping them understand better what they are really going through. And and, and again, th- what I think about it is that what am I looking for is just, I want to really kind of try to move away from this whole medicalized really system that psychiatry has been you know, uh, uh, how can I say, has been paralyzed with. I mean, we've been paralyzed by this whole medicalized, uh, looking at things from always a medicalized thing. And as you know, also in the substance use problem is always looked at this, you know, chronic disease, you know, chronic relapsing disease, you know, all these kind of even, all this kind of terminology that even comes from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, you know, which I understand, you know, you want to define it from that scientific point of view. But when you put it out, you know, in a context of working with patients, this is really damaging. This is, this is accusatory. This is, it, it kind of really demoralizes people, you know. And, and again, we're not really saying that we don't want to be honest and open with patients about what they are struggling with. And at the same time, when you really put it this way, it means, you know, oh my God, like I'm just really, you know, uh, there is no hope for me. There is no really, I'm not going to ever get better. So I think they, that aspect is not taken into consideration. And I, I really try to always tell them, use patient-specific language and guide them from there with what language they use. And you can really adjust that. 
I hate to use the word correct, but you can really kind of, in a sense, you know, uh, modify it. You can help them really kind of look at it, look at it from a different perspective. You know, I mean, I believe it's a cultural issue. It's, it, this is a cultural problem that we have, and we we need to kind of, in a sense, bridge that sort of really, uh, 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 um, you know, that 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 sort of really. Uh, 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 you know, philosophical uh, or uh, you know, uh, uh, perception of uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, of, of what what patients are really going through, what patients' diagnoses are. We need to kind of, in a way, integrate it better in terms of really, you know, uh, understanding people's experiences instead of just uh, labor. I mean, yes, you can use it. I mean, obviously, the same thing. You know, with diabetes, heart disease you know, hypertension, you know, people would need to know asthma, whatever they have, the disorder, but we don't want to really kind of, in a sense, uh, uh, you know, uh, focus on a, on the label and a diagnostic label, in fact, focus more on people's experiences and within that kind of a sort of really, you know, medical condition. And then really, otherwise, you know, that what we're doing is basically we're, we're really, uh, uh, you know, in a sense, we're really again. I mentioned it earlier. You don't you you want to always build on the glass half full, not build on the glass half empty. And when we can guide that whole process there, you know, and 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 they remember, we, Bill Miller talks about all the time in the field of addiction. Nobody's perfect. Why would we expect you know patients you know who have really psychiatric disorders to be you know always perfectly take their medication at the right time, do whatever they need to do to manage their, their depression? We do not expect it, you know, or from people who have really diabetes. We don't expect people who have diabetes to really manage their, you know, their uh, diabetes perfectly well, you know. So I think we need to have that kind of really adopt that sort of the humility, which has been a big part of uh, what I help them really kind of, the humanistic, humanistic approach that is really based on that kind of, uh, uh, you know, humility and, and really kind of, uh, as we always talk about uh, talk about the way of being with people, they're just really kind of I, I, I and and really kind of transposing yourself into the worlds to really kind of get a better understanding of what they are going through. And the word that jumps out for me is empathy, and just the whole idea that you're you're encouraging trainees to connect with and use it, their empathic understanding, first of all of their patient, but also the experience and and the patient's concerns and and needs. And then the experience of what it's like, what's it like for this patient for you to do this when you're with them? And are they finding that helpful? And part of what I also heard you saying was your challenge and the impact of, of working with labels. Like, you know, you've been through school and you've picked up these labels and it sounds like no one's ever asked you, what does that mean? And how does that look? And now what? And it was lovely the way you talked about that idea of, you know, what are you going to do, inject them with with insight? And it was a lovely way of just inviting them to uh, look at things differently because it sounds like what you're doing is you're, you're endeavouring to model motivational interviewing in your teaching of these students, whether they stay in, psychiatry, uh, in addiction psychiatry or go on to medicine somewhere else. What your hope is, take some of this with you if it's going to be useful for you to be the best doctor you can be because the world needs good doctors. And mm-hmm. get on, get on with being a good doctor. And part of it is use this thing called empathy to help you understand. And even the way you, you're, you're asking your students permission to find out what they know about anything before you then go on to teach them. So you're using your illicit, provide illicit in your teaching of, of your students and you're modeling, trusting their experience. You know, you're not being, the, you are the expert because you're, you're the lead psychiatrist, but 
You don't start off with, right, guys, you're going to do it this way. You go, right, guys, what do you think? And then when you have information that they, you feel that they need, you offer it to them. And given the importance of empathy and, and, and even the experience of empathy, allowing ourselves to open up to the empathic experience, what I'm curious about is given the nature of the people that you're supporting and particularly the emotional presentations of the people you're coming into contact with, I guess you are, have a lot of fear, a lot of loss, a lot of anxiety, a lot of psychological pain. When you're practicing empathy in that world, what I'm curious about is how do you maintain your balance well-being and how do you help your students begin to become conscious of you need practice being balanced because you're working with a lot of people who are out of balance and if you're not paying attention, you could fall out of balance and it would feel very normal to you. Yeah, that's excellent point here about, you know, uh, how you maintain your equanimity in a way throughout the whole process and really prevent that sort of, uh, you know, and you know, now the, we use a lot of that term of the compassion fatigue, you know, empathy fatigue, you know, as you know, in the context of the pandemic, you know, and, uh, you know, the one, a few things here, you know, that I, that I, uh, you know, I, I always approach and, and this is, I believe, you know, what, helped me throughout all these years, particularly working with patients, you know, with substance use or occurring psychiatric disorders, you know, is that uh, they come to you with uh, so many intense emotions, you know, they, 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 they share, you know, all this pain that you talk about, the emotional pain, the anger, the depression, I mean, all these intense shame, guilt, all these very heavy loaded, you know, emotions. And, uh, one aspect of what I uh, really try to uh, uh, help, you know, my trainees see is that, you know, through the whole process is that, you know, that you're going to experience, you know, that sort of exhaustion when you're really working with patients. You know, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be frustrated. They are not going to change, you know, they are not going to really do what you want them to do. You know, they're going to really come back and tell you, oh, I decided not to, I wanted to stop using it now. I don't want to stop you. I stopped taking my medications. I don't believe I need my medication. It's going to get you frustrated. It's going to get you into a place where you're going to, uh, you know, lose that kind of a sort of, uh, you know, uh, empathic skills or, Start questioning, am I doing it the right way? Am I, you know, so you start kind of getting into that kind of a sort of really uh, your self-efficacy, you know, starts getting shaky here, you know. And and one of the things that I found, look, this is a part of really also, you know, uh, growing here, you know. You know, and if you always, you know, think of the patients, they are in charge of their lives, you know. They are the ones who kind of really make the decisions, you know, to change. They are the ones who are going to really do it. And you are a catalyst there. You are a part of that whole process. And if you take away that sort of, and again, goes back to taking away that sort of an expert, you know, that I need to really kind of fix, you know, this, you know, and the reason, you know, they are not doing it because I did something that is not working. Instead, you know, more kind of really, you know, uh, uh, helping yourself through the process of, you know, also engaging with other really, uh, uh, colleagues, other peers, you know, to share these experiences because they could be isolating, they could be demoralizing, you know. I've gone through this myself. I've lo- lost, you know, some of my empathic really, 
you know, with spirit, you know, uh, uh, with a lot of patients who uh, keep getting rehospitalized many, many times and stop taking their medications and never follow through with any sort of a treatment. Uh, despite the fact that I kind of, I believe what I've done is the evidence base that should really work, you know, and but it didn't really kind of in a sense work. Is I think helping them at least, you know, really kind of, uh, uh, stay grounded in terms of also what they could really, what they are capable of or not. So this kind of really, when we talk about the equanimity aspect, is that really the limits of helpfulness too is important to keep in mind. You know, you you know, and and it's just really, and and this is kind of a something that is really they do not experience, you know, in other rotations, because in other rotations. And we've talked about it earlier is that there is a blood sugar that is high. We fix that. There is a high blood pressure. We give this medication. There is, you know, there is no really kind of a connection to these kind of a sort of a challenges that are related to people's experiences that can be very intense. And then this, you know, the trainees would feel that they become very much also, uh, 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 you know, uh, involved in that. And, and they need to really figure out a way how they can find, as you mentioned, you know, that sort of a balance where, you know, let me kind of really here uh, regroup myself, you know, and I, I, I encourage and I've talked with a lot of my trainees about uh, mindfulness meditation, you know, that can be extremely helpful to really regroup and reconnect, you know, with yourself, you know, and, uh, you know, we, unfortunately, we do not train much in it, you know, uh, and in medicine, you know, and, uh, but that, I think, you know, just one aspect of it is also that, uh, I, I show them also my vulnerabilities too. You know, I, they see me when I get frustrated, you know, with the certain situations with patients, you know, they see how much I get really also sometimes angry with staff, you know, about the language that is used, you know, on the unit or in the, you know, I, I, they see me, you know, as that genuine person that I kind of, feel I go through similar experiences that you're going through and that's really fine, you know, and, and it's just, and, and it's kind of fascinating because they, they tend to really kind of want to, uh, uh, in a sense, they, they try to help me process my own experiences of what I'm going through, which becomes like, which is really exactly that whole egalitarian approach. You know, they're like, uh, you know, I, I, um, I do not claim that I, Really kind of, and that's why I tell them to avoid, you know, using sometimes words of, of really, I'm an expert in MI or I'm the guru of MI here in the medical. I said, no, 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 please do not really use, just really, that takes away the whole spirit of MI. We do not, you know, there is no, if people are more proficient, people practice it, you know, we don't want to be kind of labeled again. That's, that's again, against really the, what we are really kind of trying to promote, you know, as, as really an, a, a, you know, an approach, a, a mindset, a heart set, as Bill and Steve talk about, you know, and uh, so I mean, and, and it's been really kind of, and it helps a lot, you know, also with uh, with what, what sort of responsibility they need to take, you know, and and how to deal with discord situations, you know, with their in in patients' encounters. Well, Antoine, definitely appreciate you sharing your thoughts on maintaining balance. Uh, such an important question there that Glenn asked about, and. Um, you know, just some things that stood out, the, uh, just really here, use the phrase, the limits of helpfulness. And, and it's such a, an important concept. You know, it, it strikes me as, as a, um, a reminder, not just to the, to the re- students and residents that you work with, but all of us, uh, that, you know, we can be helpful, but ultimately a patient 
who is on, on our unit or in our offices for however long they may be there will ultimately live their full lives largely independent of us. And they get to choose how they live, what they do, what they don't do. And we can play a role in that, a catalyst, as you said, but it's not all up to us. And, and that, that recognition and kind of living that out is, is a real key way for us working in, you know, stressful, challenging roles to, to maintain some of that balance. Um, so what, what we'd like to do now is, is start to, to transition to the end, at least this portion of the, the episode, we are planning a role play as we've been doing lately to kind of tack on to the, to the end of this. But um, as, we, as we often do, we just want to check in with you, Antoine, see what, what else is uh, happening for you, whether it's professionally or personally that's catching your attention that, that we could explore with you just for a couple of minutes. Sure. Thanks for asking me. You know, I, I'll tell you that's been, uh, I'm going to be really brief, just give you a sense of, you know, where I am now uh, uh, professionally and personally. I So during these past, I mean, I'll tell you a couple of years of the pandemic, you know, and it was still obviously ongoing, you know, not at a different level, you know, I, you know, I kind of in a sense was a, a huge wake up call for me in terms of really reflecting on uh, what I want to okay, well, how do I envision my really kind of life to be like? Obviously, you know, uh, we've gone, as you know, through a lot of the challenges, you know, with, uh, you know, dealing with the pandemic, the impact of the pandemic, the consequences and all this, you know, particularly emotional, you know, impact, you know. And I kind of realized more and more that as much as I love, you know, the work that I do, you know, I, uh, you know, and, and it's been, kind of like a big part of my identity, obviously, but there's also the personal aspect of what what I would like to pursue as really realizing, particularly that I've experienced, uh, uh, you know, a few losses, you know, through the whole pandemic, you know, and so kind of like, wait a second, so what, uh, you know, what matters to you at this point? What do you want to, you know, uh, what do you want to do, you know? And, and obviously I had a... a, a for a couple of years, I wasn't able to go back to France. I ended up going back to France in October at the time when, you know, the Delta was really kind of finishing up, you know, and got the other one. So I was, I had this whole three weeks there and I ended up spending some time, you know, in the country, you know, trying to really reflect more, relax more, everything, realizing, because I'm, I'm a city person, you know, obviously, even though Pittsburgh is not like a very cosmopolitan, but, I, you know, but it's just, I realized that, you know, how fascinating it is to see people living a simpler life, you know, and being fulfilled and satisfied. I mean, I never thought, you know, that I would enjoy that really kind of disconnecting, not being really overstimulated all the time. You know, even though there is a lot of the cultural aspect that I love, you know, I, I use in the fact, you know, I, one of my, uh, you know, early on in, in my, uh, you know, uh, uh, professional life, I, I was kind of pursuing a dance career, you know, and then I kind of got injured and I changed, you know, my whole really uh, perspective on what I wanted to do. Obviously, it was not possible to continue professionally, you know, uh, in the dance world, you know. And uh, so anyway, here I've been kind of thinking more and more like, uh, you know, my next steps would be potentially uh, maybe, uh, you know, uh, exploring some kind of options, maybe, uh, you know, uh, like being in a, 
in a remote area, you know, somewhere, whether it maybe it's Oregon, you know, like a Willamette Valley or, you know, or somewhere where really you can really enjoy these kind of the precious moment of being around people and relaxing and, and really kind of making your life meaningful in a different way. You know, so I kind of really, in a way, exploring a little bit of that, maybe possibly running a bed and breakfast, you know, uh, you know, place having like a farm, you know, or something, you know, and even though I, I, I never have imagined, you know, my whole life, like, you know, that I would, would want to, would even think about it this way. But I mean, I'm seriously thinking about it. I'm just really seriously thinking about my next steps in terms of really, you know, finishing up. And I'm, I'm not planning on really kind of working for, forever, you know, I mean, I feel like I've gained significant fulfillment from the work that I've done, you know, and, uh, you know, obviously it's going to be hard to detach, you know, eventually, you know, at the same time, you know, you're going to have to really kind of also see what, again, we talk about the value system, what matters to you and, and the context of really working with patients, you know, I mean, you have to really ask yourself that question, too, you know, and really, you know, have your values aligned, you know, with you know, what your behaviors are and what you really want to do. So we'll see, you know, what, uh, where this is going to go. If I, obviously there's still, I have still some ambivalence about it. <laughs> so I need to really work through it, you know, but, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll figure it out. Hopefully. Yeah. It's almost like it's a, it's a wonderful way. It's almost like the conversation is a circle. And from the beginning where you began to describe, this significant transition moment in your early career where you were introduced to addiction and motivational interviewing and it changed everything for you. It sounds like a couple of weeks back home in France, just seeing things from a different perspective has invited you to consider maybe it's time to do something different again. That yeah. what, what both of them have in common is a, pur- a sense of purpose for you, a sense of reward for you, a sense of, you know, what matters to you because Staying in touch with yourself and staying in touch with light, what lights you up is sounds like what has been rewarding up until this point. And while it brings about some potential concerns or potential difficulties, it sounds mm-hmm. like it's something that you're willing to consider. And in many ways, just noticing that is, is for the rest of us to recognize this is, this is change. And this is, this is what human beings go through. And with change, and sometimes it's really exciting, and sometimes it's really frightening, and sometimes it's both. And what you've been describing throughout the episode is just your willingness to remain curious with that person in that journey for themselves to discover what's right for them. And sometimes it's been very helpful what you do. Sometimes they need help from others as well. So, Anton, we're delighted for you to have come along today, and I have no doubt that there are many people listening will have questions or want to touch base with you. And we we always ask our guests, if people are, who are listening want to reach out to you and make comments or con- ask questions, is that okay for them to do it? And if it is, what's the what, what different ways can people get in touch with you? Yeah, well, we'd love to hear from people. Yes. Any comments, uh, questions, reflections, any, uh, you know, and they can uh, reach me via email and, uh, my email is uh, Dwayhea, so D O U A I H Y A at upmc.edu. Fantastic, and we'll we'll add that onto the the podcast notes. And for just to remind, as we come to the end ourselves, and say in advance, we will have the uh, a role play at the, at the at the far end of this when we finish this episode. But just to remind people how they may stay in touch with us. 
Right. So on Twitter, uh, it is at change talking. Uh, Facebook is talking to change. Uh, Instagram talking to change podcast. And uh, any requests or questions or comments to Glenn or I, uh, it is podcast at glennhines.com. Fantastic. So again, thank you, Antoine, for your time, for your for your sharing your expertise, and um, and thank you, thank you, Seb. Thank, thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Antoine. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you, Sebastian, for uh, coming today. Uh, how have you been doing recently? Well, I'll tell you, um, I, I I just can't seem to, uh, you know just can't seem to relax. I just feel so stressed, uh, all the time. I, I'm, you know, whether it's at work or at home or in the car or in laying in bed at night, I just, I just feel like there's a, a tension that's pressing on me at all times. And yeah, I, it's just been a really, really tough few weeks here. You've, you've been very much struggling recently you know and uh, you've been feeling overwhelmed but now and as you're describing your anxiety has been really very much in a way paralyzing you yeah i mean i, I it, it takes a lot to to you know get out of bed in the morning to go to work to to you know to stay focused i mean it, it just takes every every bit of energy uh for me um just, I, you know, I've just had these thoughts that are just constantly in my head about things that might go wrong or, you know, just, you know, worries about screwing things up. It, it, I don't know, it's just, just hard to really, it's getting harder and harder to, to just do what I normally would do. You're very much overwhelmed, you know, and uh, you've been trying very hard to really pull yourself out of that kind of a state of mind uh, at the same time. You know, you're really kind of also experiencing what you're describing in addition to that anxiety, that sense of really being unmotivated, uh, not having much of a drive. And I was wondering, you know, what you see that, how you see that kind of in a way going with the anxiety. So you're describing, in fact, the anxiety part at the same time, I'm getting a sense that you're also describing some state of being really very much down and uh, not being able to really function. Yeah, I, I, it's, you know, I guess part of it is it, it's just more challenging to do the things I normally do in trying to like turn off all of this worry. Um, and, and just as day in, day out, week in, week out that I've had to, to deal with this, it's been, um, yeah, it's just no fun. Mm-hmm. It's just not enjoyable and, and life, it, it, there, there's no break to it. And, um, and yeah, I'm just, I, I, I guess down would be a word, you know, I, I just, I, 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 it's hard to really find enjoyment out of anything mm-hmm. uh, anymore. Well, you, you've been feeling stuck for quite a while now. You said that's been going on for a really significant period of time and you're seeing yourself really getting more and more unable to really pull yourself out of that state. And that's kind of obviously uh, creating a lot of confusion for you, a lot of that sense of being demoralized, you know, more and more maybe depressed even, you know, to a point where 
you really kind of get keep going like that. And as you said, a lot of these thoughts that you've been experiencing are kind of really taking over in a way and really not letting you kind of, you know, getting in the way of your really functioning. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm depressed. I mean, uh, I, people, I, I think I, depression means you're just kind of crying all the time. And I, you know, I, that's not, that's not what I do, I, but it, um, but I don't, I don't know. You're the doctor. So I guess you, you might know better than me, but I, it's, but you know, demoralizing, I guess is a word that fits. I, I, I don't know if depression does that. I, again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not crying all day. So the, you're, you're obviously wondering, you know, what, uh, you know, what it means, you know, to be really depressed. What, what is your, what your experience is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, what you're describing is that state of being <clears throat> always very stressed out, a lot of, having a lot of ruminations, you know, your thoughts are kind of running and running and running, a lot of racing thoughts, a lot of that anxiety, you know, at the same time also, you're really uh, having a hard time with uh, your motivation. You're really, you know, uh, less and less motivated recently and then you're reaching a kind of a point where as you said you're wondering you know what what is that state that i'm in you know and and you're kind of questioning you know what what it means to be depressed from you obviously what you're what you're describing as as the experience is mostly as you said the confusing experience and feeling kind of really very much unable to really function which is really kind of leading you to being more kind of help feeling more helpless and I was wondering, you know, if it's okay with you, because you're kind of questioning, is that depression? Is that, uh, what am I going through here, you know? And would it be all right with you if we talk a little bit about that part, you know, and maybe I can give you some perspective and you tell me what your thoughts are on that? And Yeah, that, that sounds like it'd be anything you can do to, to, to help me feel better, really. I appreciate it. So so what what uh, uh, what you're describing is, as you said, the, is more that kind of a sense of really uh, significant uh, uh, feeling overwhelmed all the time and not being able to really kind of also process your thoughts and your emotions. You talked about that, and you talked about really, you know, being very much uh, uh, unable to uh, to really function as a result of that. At the same time, when people also experience, and these are what you're describing, are really you know, symptoms of anxiety, of an anxiety disorder. We can figure out together what sort of really particular anxiety, you know, uh, you know, uh, disorder you might have here, you know, and because a lot of people can experience that kind of really uh, a, a sense of continuous anxiety that affects their sleep, can affect their, their thinking, can affect their uh, attention span, concentration, you know, and some people also can have what we call like a, anxiety attacks or panic attacks, these really kind of a short episode of three, four, five minutes of really a huge surge of anxiety where they can't even breathe, they can they can get overwhelmed, they feel like they're gonna die. And what this is one thing you're describing. And the other thing that you have really also described is that state where you're really feeling more unmotivated, not wanting to do the things that you enjoy doing from what you're really saying that you typically usually do. So you lost that sort of an interest. And, and these are really things that kind of are leaning more towards a depressive state. And we know very well, it's not unusual that most people who experience depression or anxiety, they have them together. They come really hand in hand. Mm. What do you think about my really perspective? Obviously, you know yourself the best here. 
Well, you know, I guess it's helpful. I didn't know that people who were stressed and anxious were also depressed. And, and I, again, I thought depression meant you were just sad all the time and crying. And, uh, but I guess, you know, you mentioned not feeling motivated and feeling a bit helpless about things and some of these other, other ways that other things that you reference, which I would say are true. And so, uh, yeah, I guess I, I, I mainly came in focused on my stress level and, and my nerves that I just can't stand anymore and hoping I could maybe get some medication for that. But, uh, but you know, now that you mention it, I guess depression, I, I suppose it, it could, it could fit. It could fit if, if, if it means if one can be depressed without, again, without tears and crying and, and sobbing all day, then I, I guess that mm-hmm. fits for me too. Well, you're making a very good point because uh, people have different experiences of depression. So some of the, some people experience depression more as a state of feeling very much down in the dumps, you know, not having much motivation, not having much drive, losing interest in pleasurable things, having difficulty with their sleep, sleeping too much, not sleeping, crying, you know, you know, having difficulty controlling their emotions, having difficulty concentrating, focusing. So it, it varies. Every person experiences the depression in different ways. The same thing for anxiety. You know, your experiences are really unique. At the same time, they kind of fit into this, you know, big picture of what we've been describing, whether it's really anxiety and depression. And I think most importantly, as you said, you know, here, you just want to do something about it. You cannot keep living like that. This is like a torture for you, you know, and you're, you're really totally, as I mentioned before, you know, you, you come across that you feel like totally paralyzed and you cannot really you know, do the thing, you cannot see yourself productive anymore. And and I was kind of wondering also that creates that sense of really, you know, uh, helplessness and the sense of hopelessness a little bit. And as we mentioned, the sense of demoralization. At the same time, you are really open to what could we really here do, you know, to help me figure out what's going on. And you brought up the medication piece and there are also other options that we can look at that could be potentially helpful that we can really uh, explore, you know, in addition to the medication. The medication could play a role, obviously, in addressing some of these symptoms, you know, and helping you really kind of, in a sense, get more regulated. Your emotions getting more, you know, under control. What do you think if we can have that explore together here, you know, these options, medications option as well as, you know, other really what we call therapeutic options, like, you know, uh, counseling type of options, talk therapy type of options. Yeah, I've tried talk therapy in the past. I've tried meds in the past. I, I, um, I don't know. I'm a pretty busy guy. I don't, I, you know, talking about my feelings isn't really my favorite thing to do. And I could think about it. Honestly, I, I remember maybe 10 years ago when I was, uh, you know, I was going through my divorce and I was really stressed and, uh, I had my, my doctor gave me some Xanax and that, that seemed to really help me a lot. So I, I figured maybe I could come in and, you know, my doctor wasn't really interested. He, he, he was, you know, I have a new doctor now and, and he felt like I should go see you. So, mm-hmm. okay. So I agreed to that. And, and, you know, I, I'm thinking maybe if, if, if you could give me some Xanax, cause it helped me before, you know, that, that'd be great. Okay. So uh, uh, just to understand what you've been sharing with me, you've had negative experiences, you know, with medications or with therapy, as you said before. You haven't had very good experience. You haven't seen it as really beneficial before. With you the know, therapy part, Xanax was the helpful. The but, medication. But therapy, yeah. 
Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. And the other aspect that you're really mentioning is that in terms of, uh, uh, you know, that what, in terms of really your experience, you know, with the Xanax, you know, what, uh, what specifically you've seen improving when you took that medication? Well, it's just, it, it felt like, you know, this feeling of pressure that I have now, it just felt like, you know, within a matter of minutes, it just, it was like a valve that kind of released that pressure. And it just helped me to, to just really relax. It helped me sleep. You know, it, it's like a quick relief, quick relief. You know, you got that quick, quick relief, reducing yeah. the anxiety level and feeling, you know, more kind of comfortable with yourself. Yep. And, uh, That's right. So, yeah. And, uh, uh, w- would it be all right with you if we, and I know you said, as you said, you're really kind of wondering about whether, uh, this is, uh, whether I would be willing to prescribe it, you know, uh, uh, you know, whether you would be kind of also open to some really ideas about different options. I mean, the Xanax could be one medication option that can help, you know, in terms of really the shorter treatment of the anxiety. You know, which means because it does not help prevent the anxiety for the long run. So as you described it, you described it really articulated it very well, that it helped you really at that moment to decrease that level of anxiety. So we could really potentially, you know, consider that as one option at the beginning of treatment that could really help, you know, relieve your, you know, relieve your kind of anxiety symptoms so you can really think more clearly, you know, and, and we can look at also other options that can help for the long run. What are your thoughts on that? So, so you're saying I might need medications for, for a long time. Well, for, for your, from what you're describing with your condition, the, the, really the chronic course of it and your anxiety, you know, uh, what is more indicated is medication over the long run, you know, that to really kind of control it and to prevent it from happening again. Mm. You know, because mm. you want to really be able to really, you know, live your life without having these doubts of anxiety keep coming back and affecting your ability to function and obviously leading to really the, the depression piece that you've talked about. And we can look at options, you know, in terms of medication that can work for both, for the really that chronic anxiety as well as really, you know, making sure also to really address the depressive you know, symptoms that you're really experiencing. So we have different options from that perspective. One one aspect that I would like you to think about and tell me uh, what your thoughts are on that is that, you know, when you kind of also think more clearly, and I know you mentioned that some negative experience with the talk therapy, I wonder whether you have received the therapy that would be mostly, the mostly, you know, helpful for you considering your anxiety symptoms and depressive symptoms. We can look at these options too. You know, mm. if you were willing to do so, and we know very well that uh, the combination of both could really potentially, you know, kind of uh, really produce better response than just one option versus the other. What do you think? Well, if I guess, uh, I mean, look, I'm I'm willing to do anything, I guess, and if if there's a medication that helps both with my anxiety and stress level, and and you know, it sounds like you think I'm. I have depression too. If there's a medication for both, I, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of taking a bunch of pills. So, so that would be good. And, you know, it sounds like you want me to see a therapist again, or at least try it. And, 
yeah, I mean, I don't know, but the, the person I saw before, it was somebody through work and, you know, I don't, it, it didn't really feel like. It wasn't good. That, but it was, he was real busy, canceled a lot, just really was, it seemed like he forgot who I was each time I went in there. And I don't know, it just didn't really seem like it was useful. Well, you, you clearly, what you're describing, you didn't feel like he cared much, obviously. I mean, from your experience, you know, and, you know, that you really, uh, uh, you know, you didn't feel, uh, as you described it before, you didn't feel comfortable. You struggled with opening up to begin with. And and that kind of really sort of really, uh, you know, situations, you know, had with that therapist, you know, did not uh, make you feel comfortable you know, uh, opening up and learning, you know, something from it. Or, and as you said, you know, there, uh, this is one attempt, you know, that you tried, you know, uh, obviously it's going to be up to you to decide whether you would be open to really giving it another try, you know, and, uh, and obviously, you know, we know very well, we can't guarantee, you know, how it's going to go. We would hope, you know, making sure, you know, that if we have some really kind of people that I can think of, therapists that would be potentially a good fit for you, you know, with the with their background and how, you know, in terms of uh, addressing anxiety and depression, you know, and if you would be willing to give it a try, then we can pursue that, that part. Too. Sure. I, I guess I, you know, I, I, I know I can't keep living like this, so I... I'd be willing to try whatever you think would be helpful. Really, I'd, I'd be willing to try it. Well, I appreciate you really you're taking my advice. Obviously, it's entirely up to you to decide. And and I kind of sense a little bit, and which is not unusual, you know, to be hesitant about it. You know, to be ambivalent about it. That this part of you is just wondering. You know, is this going to potentially work? I've tried it before. You know, and so you're you're in that kind of a state of mind where it is not unusual. You know, it's kind of very much normal, in fact, you know, to kind of wonder and question and, you know, so, uh, uh, so oh, it's always entirely up to you. I mean, now your decision is going to be whether you would want to give it a try, you want to give, you know, uh, you want to really try that opportunity or it's, I'll leave it up to you. We have different ways of doing things here. You know, and you decide what you feel the best way to do it, whether starting with the medications and then doing the therapy or doing them together, you know, or so it's it's up to you. It certainly feels like you're listening to what I'm saying. And, um, I, you know, I, I'm I am hesitant. I suppose I, you know, I came in hoping you'd give me, you know, just a prescription for Xanax like I did years ago. And. Uh, and maybe I'm leaving with, with more than that or, or in addition to that. So, but I'm open to it. And like I said, I, I, I just can't keep living like this. Well, I, I appreciate your uh, trusting me here. You know, I, I just, I, you know, I, you've articulated very well what you're really going through. I want to make sure here we're going to work together and do whatever you believe is really the right thing for you to do. I mean, I can give my perspective. You can you can still really kind of in a way disagree or we can always really brainstorm different options, you know, and I want to make sure that we have a good way of really communicating openly with each other. And I would like you to tell me whenever you feel like it's not working out, I'm I'm not really understanding, you know, your your struggles or just to, just to bring it up, you know, and we can figure it out together, you know, what, you know, how we can uh, get a better understanding of what you're going through and, and making sure the ultimate basically, you know, uh, Thing that we want to look for here is that's making you feel better so you can get back to functioning better and have a better quality of life. All right. Well, I, I appreciate it, doc. Um, I wasn't sure what I'd expect coming in today, but I, I, I appreciate you listening and 
trying to help me. Thank you. Right. So that sounds like there's a there's a there's a transition taking place now, and I imagine in, in real life that conversation may have continued for a little longer, and those options. And I think that's the thing. What strikes me is that before I asked both of you to debrief that, the overarching uh, piece for me was just your emphasis on the options, choices, reinforcing the clients, patients' autonomy, and just the whole thing was about possibilities, that you were the expert, but your expertise wasn't weighing heavy on the process. It was really light touch. You were offering lots of options and ideas and thoughts and just reinforcing and encouraging the patient to decide whatever you want, whatever you can do, I'll, I'll endeavor to support that. And I guess can, if it's okay to start, then can we maybe speak first to the patient and just check how, how is that for you? Yeah, I know it was, it was really interesting to, to role play that. I, um, I mean, it went from that initial period of me sharing what I was sharing and, and, you know, I'm, of course, in a kind of a real situation, there may be some nuances and details that you'd be exploring that you didn't hear, just the interest of time. But I, it, it felt like your priority actually wasn't, is it this variant of anxiety or is this strain of this or that? It was, you know, what is your experience? And I want to make sure you feel as if I get it and I'm hearing you and I'm, I'm capturing it in some way. And then it shifted it, and it, you picked up on my, my sort of passing comment about medication and it like was this opportunity for you, it seemed to, to still maintain that reflective stance and that constant effort to understand. But it was like this moment of, and here's something that you you're thinking about in, in a broad sense, something that you'd like to be different, something that you want to do about it, some change that's possible. And so it was really kind of, a, like you said, Glenn, a light touch of it, but, mm-hmm. but definitely helped me g- go from a place of, all right, this guy gets it. And yeah, let's think about what we're going to do about it. Mm. So like, can I just check with you? See the, see the, the experience of being got? Yeah. What was, the, you know, what, what was the experience? What was that like for you? And going in because it sounds like you had an expectation. I'm going to the psychiatrist. Blah blah. Yeah, yeah. And you got caught. Right. Yeah, because I, you know, I, I had the experience before that I mentioned. You know, where, you know, I saw a therapist through work, and mm. you know, that was clearly not helpful. In fact, it felt, you know, kind of like a not just a like a waste of time, but even worse. Like the person just didn't care. Mm. And then even, even just with setting up this appointment, I went to see my doctor and my doctor didn't give me what I wanted, Mm. right? Uh, My, my primary care doctor, right? And, and so, uh, you know, coming into it, it's, there's already like this negative experiences in the past, maybe a sense of like, you know, I'm, I'm searching, I'm doing what I need to do to try to get some help here. And, and so the, the, to, to feel as if, someone is taking the time in a pretty brief interaction. Mm. Um, it, it, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it just kind of softens the, the edge. It creates an openness in me to 
to hmm. fully explore things. We didn't go into much detail about the ins and outs of, of my life and what's going on. However, if, if and when, and in a, in a real encounter, there probably would have been questions hmm. that are more sensitive in nature, sure. right? Trauma, history, substance abuse, current, previous. I, I briefly mentioned a divorce, right? Yeah. And, you know, so there's some things that you would be exploring that are more sensitive in nature. The feeling of being, of, 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 um, being got, I mm. guess, or being understood mm. as, as the foundation really sets up the openness that would come later. Right. So Anton didn't have to go deep for you to feel understood. He got, he, he what you were offering, he worked with that and that was really meaningful. And it sounds like, you know, f from a strength-based perspective, it's almost like the foundations are now in place. If they are going to go deep, the foundations are in place. It's almost like paradoxical. He's going to go deep by going up, by building on where he's at. And I guess what I suppose what I'm curious about then, Antoine, is obviously this this was, we had we'd agreed we were going to do role play, but we hadn't agreed that this wasn't scripted. So what I'm curious about is um, what was going on behind the curtain when you were in that process, what 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 were you processing, and um, how were you making the decisions you were making? Because Seb found it really helpful. Sure, this is yeah, this is a great question because I have like I was always like have this kind of a roadmap, you know, right, you know, of where you would want to go, and I think the two things that I would never want to compromise that would eventually create the discord was partnership and the autonomy support. These have to be reinforced over and over again. So the question, the challenge for me was, how can you remain genuine, you know, and not kind of in a sense jump to conclusions because he asked about the medication that he wants. That's, because I could have simply said that from the beginning, oh, forget it, I'm not going to prescribe you know, this. So in a sense, I, it, when you anticipate the, uh, the outcome, mm. but when you set the outcome, you're kind of in a way destroying the relationship. Mm. Because Obviously, you're not allowing, you know, the patient to really, you know, give them their perspective. Jumping right away to making a decision, you know, can be, I mean, it's not really kind of am I adherent, mm. right? I mean, that's what I try really to do as much as I can, you know, to really stay am I adherent from the spirit aspect, particularly the partnership supporting autonomy, evoking you know, and all this kind of, and at the same time, you know, obviously, you know, remaining, you know, you know, empathically present, you know, with, with him, you know, so I think, and it did help me because I get that kind of a sense that also, and Sebastian, you mentioned that, you know, uh, you know, that you have a hard time opening up. I mean, in fact, I didn't reflect on it, you know, early on, I went back, I waited to reflect on it later on you know, in the context of that negative experience that you had with the therapist. So to really, in a way, normalize, you know, the fact and validate that your experiences, you know, were really kind of very totally legitimate and valid because you did not see somebody, you didn't, you were not present with somebody who has expressed any interest in really understanding what you're really going through. Mm -hmm. And how would you really, what makes you kind of feel safe and comfortable to open up? You're not going to do it. You already struggle with that. So I think I tried to really kind of, which is really always a challenge. I try to remain as genuine as possible as really, you know, sticking to the amount, uh, staying adherent, you know, with the, with the whole intervention, you know, and, and again, you know, uh, I still use my, my expert opinion kind of, but obviously in a way that is more engaging and always really kind of presenting the different options, 
you know, in terms of treatment and based on science, mm. you know, on science, obviously, you know, and, uh, and, and really always kind of referring to, if, you know, and obviously the, I kind of always needed to remember that the pointing out his ambivalence, you know, that is really crucial because that could be something to go back to mm. because that can kick in any time. Mm. I mean, he, Willing at this point in time, first time change talk. I'm willing to give it a try. You know, yes, we can do it. You know, and at the same time, I shouldn't take it for granted that this ambivalence is not going to kick in at any point in time, and he's going to say, "Forget it." You know, I don't want to really do this. You know, I want just that medication. You know, and so I think you know that could be also another areas to explore a little bit more to always check on. You know, in terms of uh, you know his ambivalence about engaging in treatment. Mm. And, and normalizing is such a significant part of what you're describing, which you were first of all normalizing the patient's experience of their own experience. Exactly. And, and you're, you were weaving your expertise in, and in such a gentle way, which was, and you know, you describe this and from our experience or other people, and you describe the generalized and then the more specific anxieties and depressions. And then very significantly asked, and what do you think about that? And you, you invited the client or the patient to come back to respond to your information rather than simply saying, this is what you've got to think. And this is what's happening to you. You went, this is what's, you know, this is what, this is what we understand. What do you think about that? And, and then the normalizing of this is somebody who's struggling. So you, for what, what you were witnessing was really quite normal in your experience, which was this is somebody struggling. And I don't have to get angsty and I don't have to get frightened and I don't have to get too worried about this person's presentation because this is quite a normal presentation for somebody who has anxiety and depression. And in my experience, there is hope because people have come to me and with this experience and, and over a period of time, whether it be medication in conjunction with, with good therapy or whatever else, this can be helped and, and this can be resolved and you bring that hope with you. Evoking, evoking that hope. And, yeah. mm. and there was, you know, another thing too, there was no point where you stated an opinion about anxiety or this, this sort of new idea of depression added to the mix, the, the medication, long-term, short-term introduction of therapy. There's nothing, at no point did you offer something without checking with me how that landed? What do I think of that? Um, there, you know, there, there was nothing that was like, this is a fact because I'm saying it or because I think it. <laughs> right. Thank you. Is, uh, yeah. And, yeah. and within a short, I mean, we were able to do it. I wonder how much time we spent on that and that encounter. Yeah. But it just really demonstrates, you know, that it is really doable. Mm. And then as, as you mentioned, also, you can really also build on it in the next sessions too. Mm. I mean, this is kind of like a work in progress here. Yeah, not everything has to happen. Not every single stone needs to be unturned. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's certain, I guess, more so have tos. Like I imagine you would have explored safety, and you know, certainly yeah. in a first session, yeah. like that's something that's standard for psychiatric practice. But uh, you know, um, yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is also an ongoing process as well. Yeah. Well, again, gentlemen, thank you both. First of all, Antoine, for your willingness to offer that support, and Sebastian for your willingness to take on the role and to help us to get a better idea of what it was you've been describing in the podcast in action and just that kindness, that spirit of understanding and empathy and desire to understand the patient and for you to be as helpful as you can be. So 
thank you again for for the for uh, the podcast in total and the, and the role play, Antoine. Thanks for having me. Love Thanks so much. <laughs> Take care. Take care. All right. Thanks, Tom. Bye. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.